It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We're doing another true crime episode of the podcast, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina. Eris, what's up, man? What's going on, my friend? <laughs> not a whole lot. I mean, we got some icky stuff to talk about today. Not, not as detailed as some of the true crime episodes can be, but still pretty icky. Yeah, dude, the, the, the show we're going to do today, man, is a, is a pretty wild story, even though, like you just said, there's not a ton of info out there on it. But it also brings us back to one of my favorite eras in boxing, you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s heavyweights and that whole era. So everybody knows the same names that we always discuss where, you know, that people bring up um, person who celebrate who would have been celebrating his 80th birthday today, Muhammad Ali and all of his old friends, Frazier, Norton, Jimmy Young you know, Ernie Shavers, Ron Lyle, so on and so forth, right? But the, the division was so deep, you know, there was always like a group of contenders that didn't right quit, quite reach that level, but still made for a lot of memorable fights and still had good careers in their own right. Guys like Scott Ledoux, guys like Marty Monroe, Lynn Ballin, the guy we're going to talk about today, who didn't even reach quite their level, so to speak. But still it made, you know, for some memorable fights during his career and which is why we're talking about him today because he had a memorable life and that was uh bill sharkey that's right man <laughs> bill shark and uh, actually you know the the last name sharkey New York city bill sharkey exactly so, i it's my place right now you know <laughs> oh, the the last name sharkey it's a couple of famous sharkies far more famous sharkies throughout history and of course you hear the last name sharkey in boxing you're probably first going to be thinking of Jack Sharkey, who was briefly heavyweight champion in the 1930s and, you know, lost to Jack Dempsey, et cetera. You know, famously lost to Jack Dempsey with the, what do you want me to do? Write him a letter hook, you know, talking to the referee. And then there was sailor Tom Sharkey years before then, who was a heavyweight title challenger toward uh, James Jeffries and had fought, you know, a number of really great fighters around that time. And it's pretty memorable looking but there was another Sharky who was around many decades later. And so that's that's who we're talking about today. We're talking about Bill Sharkey. And that's going to be a name unfamiliar probably to most boxing fans and even to some history people. Because uh, like I mentioned before and like you reiterated, there's not nearly as much information about Bill Sharkey, what happened to him, and even stuff during his career as there would be uh, about some of these other fighters that we've talked about in the past on these true crime episodes but still um that era that he operated in like you said it was so deep it was so good in the late 60s early 70s that even guys on this level the kind of bill sharky level i mean you could you could almost see him i'm not saying they're gonna like beat a tyson fury or something but you you could see him hanging in there with some of the perhaps mid echelon heavyweights of today Absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, given his size, he was a rather small guy compared to even. Yeah, he wasn't real big. 
He wasn't. He'd probably be a cruiserweight today. I'm not even sure if he'd be a bridgeweight, so to speak. So, um, but yeah, he he was a good fighter. He was a tough guy. And one of those errors where even if you were a decent fighter, you were only going to reach a certain level. And whenever you stepped up, it was pretty apparent what was going to happen to you. But that being said, um, he still wasn't like, you know, he's still competitive. Like he, you know, he fought a lot of guys, recognizable, recognizable names during that time. Guys like Mike Weaver, Cali Kanitza, Frank Bruno, Scott Ledoux. So he was around, you know, and he had a, you know, an interesting personality, which we're about to talk about in a minute, coming from his background and growing up in Queens, New York, um, kind of a, you know, a shady past, so to speak, but also made for an interesting character. And, you know, the brief interview clips that you can find online, um, you can tell by right away by his style, the way he talks and stuff like that. He has a sort of, you know, a, um, a sort of chip on his shoulder, so to speak. But yeah, he was one of those fighters that, you know, added into the to the late 70s and early 80s of the heavyweight division, cruiserweight heavyweight division. And um, he, he mixed in with all of them. I mean, not so much with a lot of success, but enough that, you know, people from that era definitely remember him. Yeah, he was he was obviously a uh, a memorable a memorable dude in terms of personality, and he was he fought hard too. He might not have been a very big guy, but he was fairly uh, intimidating looking. I don't know. I mean, I guess looking back, it's not intimidating. It's not intimidating looking back and seeing a guy who kind of looks like could have been like your uncle drinking beer at like a you know some some kid's birthday party or something like that with the handle he has like a handlebar mustache he's got like curly hair that's kind of like mid-length doesn't really look he's a he's well built but doesn't look super impressive so i mean you know it he kind in fact, of in retrospect a big guy but like you know with, with the hair that he has and you mentioned the handlebar mustache and all that and then you find out reading part of his background he used to be a hairdresser at one point yeah um, <laughs> it's you don't think yeah, he, he doesn't look like the type of guy that, you know, would, would you'd be intimidated by or do anything like that. But no, he was he was tough as nails. And going by his background, former gang member and um, former gang leader, actually. Yeah, I was saying before the show uh, that you knew a little bit more about his background than I do. But there is some, there's a little bit out there in terms of like uh, reading about uh, his career and stuff like that in newspapers and there's in particular like on YouTube there's one video of him fighting Kali Knutza the South African which we'll get to that in a little bit but um but yeah there's there's this element and I think that this kind of ties into what we've talked about in a lot of these true crime episodes not always but often it's guys who come from just rough areas or rough backgrounds and by the time that bill sharkey even found his way to boxing in the early 1970s he had already been through a lot he'd run the streets in new york he found himself in prison already you know and that's that's kind of like where he'd even gotten by his mid-20s into boxing he'd already lived a lifetime absolutely man so like you just alluded to he was already in trouble you know he was a leader of a gang in new york um, based out of Howard Beach in Queens, which was a very rough area to begin with from back then. And he was, you know, running the streets, kind of running wild. And at the age of 19, um, apparently he came home one day to see a bunch of cop cars and ambulances and all kinds of other nonsense going on around there to find out that his uh, parents were the victim of a murder-suicide. His dad killed his mom and then killed himself after that. And 
so for anybody you know i can't even imagine what that must be like to go through that type of thing already uh, like you come home and that's where you walk into just unknowingly or anything like that like i the effect that that must take on you and what that must fuck you up with afterwards is like mind-blowing so the um <laughs> we'll just say that Sharky definitely had a lot of demons in his closet and a lot of stuff going on when it would be an understatement. But he was able to channel a lot of that, I guess, in the boxing. Because for a good while, um, even though he did get in some more trouble after this, which I'm going to let you get into, he, um, for the most part afterwards, when he was able to clean himself up a little bit, he did channel everything, you know, all of his anger, all the issues that he was going through in life and trying to as other people that went through stuff like Johnny Tapio and other guys from the past, like at least trying to use an outlet in boxing for that. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that it sounded like he was already kind of pointed in the wrong, wrong direction by the time that had happened with his parents. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But he, even if he weren't, that's enough to make somebody snap. I mean, and I, and I know that's kind of like a, a phrase that, I mean, I, I understand that, mental illness is more de delicate than that. And the things that people go through are far more complex than just snapping. But nonetheless, you know, <clears throat> arriving home to find both your parents dead in under those circumstances and is enough to, to make a bad situation worse. And that's, that's pretty much, that sounds like it's exactly what happened. I don't know all of the details, but I know that Sharky wound up uh, killing a guy at his apartment at the other person's apartment uh, that wound up being some sort of case of mistaken identity or mix up. But in, in any case, Bill Sharkey goes to jail, goes to prison for three years for a manslaughter conviction. And when he gets out at 24, 25, that's when he starts boxing. That's when he gets into boxing, turns pro and starts having uh, some surprising success, actually not really against good opposition, but surprising success anyway. Well, you think about it again, this is now the mid 70s and with mid 70s boxing, a lot of guys, even guys that went on to, be, you know, become really good professionals, world champions and stuff like that. If you look at their early records, they are very active, but a lot of those guys, they fought often, they fought against experienced guys, but they weren't against the people with the best looking records either. You know what I mean? They fought guys that it's just, you know, there were a lot of opponents back then. Boxing was much more unregulated. It's been mentioned in many articles and other stuff that how boxing was much more of the wild, wild west back then in terms of activity and really wanting to pad a record and such and so on. It was easy to do. So Sharky... That was like one of the last times, too, when somebody could get away with, like, a pseudonym, you know, like yeah. a like a funny nickname and actually go by that name in, the, in boxing, you know? And then, like, change your name up, fight this way, do that, do... You know, that was going on up until the 90s, probably up in the early 2000s. And... um but much, much, much more prevalent in the 70s when yeah. you were able to get away with that type of deal or just pad your record all, all over the country. You know what I mean? So Sharky was developing a little bit of um, a following up in Queens and the upstate New York area, you know, Long Island, excuse me, Long Island area. And like you mentioned, he had a record, he filled it up until around he was about 15, 16 and 0. And then at that point, he was going to fight a guy by the name of Mike Weaver, who at the time would go on to become a world champion. Um, but at that moment, he was still an 11 and six fighter. And um, yeah, that was uh, Sharky's first taste of defeat. Yeah, you know, he was 15 and 0 going into that fight. 
And um, it sounded like that was, you know, not not as if like he wasn't trying to win, but that it was a surprise that he had gotten that far undefeated. And so, you know, you talked about uh, going into that fight. They had mentioned the other, like he was a Mason. He was a hairdresser. He had gone through this kind of like small list of professions. And I mean, I, I, that was probably as much due to the fact that he had gotten into some legal trouble. And I mean, uh, was having issues holding a job, perhaps. I, I don't really know the details on that, but that was part of kind of his story leading up to I that Weaver fight. To say that he was a hothead would probably be an understatement too, because by, by all accounts of going what by his own records and what he said in interviews and such and what you know you read about and what you can see in the limited footage there is you can kind of tell he has a chip on his shoulder and a little bit of a temper so yeah just trying to hold a normal nine to five wouldn't be something that would normally suit bill shark i think yeah he didn't really seem like somebody who was uh like who would have an easy time adjusting basically and on top of that kind of speaking to his like I was talking about his size earlier and that he doesn't in retrospect seem very intimidating but at the time he probably would have been because I mean also man you gotta you gotta remember like workout videos and shit like that like fools who were supposed to be intimidating or guys who were supposed to be manly and what they were wearing at this point I mean mid from the mid 70s to the early 80s like bare midriffs and cutoffs and shit like that see-through shirts like manly guys were wearing shit like this so a guy with like a with the long curly hair and the mustache, you know what I mean? Like that was probably intimidating then. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Although just uh, everyone talks about Apollo Creed, that's probably the best way to look at it, now. Saying, you know, yeah, I know. Like the they're running to embrace each other at the beach, like in slow motion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or People were that, like, oh wow, when he was just smoking Rocky's boots on the beach when he was running by him. Every single time he was always wearing the midriff cut off at every single thing in the short shorts. They, yeah, they and, loved that uh, shit, dude. And people were people were watching this being like, oh, I need to be like this with my bros. And why not? Be great. like that with your bros. That was like the end thing back in the day. Yep. The yep, the extreme Jerry curl with like the yep. Just saying. But no, you know, he was uh he obviously had an intimidating personality though. Like he uh I think just the way and it's not like we know a lot of it, but watch, go find the Cali Canoza fight. And Eris and I were just talking about this before we were recording because it's funny, but it's also, I think gives, gives away some hints of his personality and hints of like, you know, him as a person, they're very small things to seize on, but still, I think, you know, they're telling, uh, they're interviewing both Bill Sharkey and Cali Canoza before the fight. And he's so dismissive of a lot of the things that are said because it's almost like they're asking the normal questions. Like, how do you feel? Are you scared? Are you nervous? This type of shit. And he's just sitting there like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah. Like, unaffected. He just doesn't really give a shit. Like, he's gone through a lot in his life. And at this point, whatever it is that you have, you know, you might win, he might lose, whatever, but you, you're not going to, like, phase him. And I think that's that's the shit there, you know? he's He's gone through a lot. And so... Yeah, so what you're alluding to is that, like, before this fight, so he fights Mike Weaver, and I'm not sure if he was probably being, uh, if he was an underdog or not. Weaver might have been an underdog or not because Weaver went into his town of the Beacon Theater in New York to fight him. But regardless, Weaver, and Weaver had up, so many ups and downs in his career, yeah, too. Yeah, at that so, point, I mean, who too, knows? Weaver probably was, you know, much, much, much tougher at that point than, than um, Bill Sharkey was. But Weaver ends up winning a majority decision by all accounts, <laughs> really bruising good affair. It's 
not anywhere online, so I couldn't tell you. I've never seen it. But anyways, after, soon after that, after a few more wins, he ends up fighting Cali Canizza. So the controversy before the fight was, since the fight was taking place in Miami Beach, um, they were trying to basically block Canizza from fighting out there over what was going on in South Africa with Apartheid. Oh, this, this subject's been coming up in on boxing social media. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, yeah. Something that's so... been mentioned a little bit. So on boxing Twitter over the past few days with a lot of, you know, recent news developing and all that. So just, just, um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> in the late seventies was probably at the, at the height of it when it came to the controversy of boxing and apartheid and what was going on, because Unlike another um, another fighter who went on to become champion, Harry Kotsia, who was also active during that time, Kanutsa was a very was a very low key personality. Kanutsa was a very bold, brash, obnoxious type guy, who also came with a lot of baggage and controversy because he was a cop, um, pro apartheid, and shot a black youth um, during a controversial um, situation that arose. And so, yeah, there was a lot of issues going on with him. And a lot of people were very angry that he was able to be a fighter and try to come to America and apply his trade and make money off of that. Understandably so. So with all that being said, there's much, much more to dive into, but we did a podcast on that. Anyway, um, long story short, that was a lot of controversy arising from Kanutsa fighting over here and doing all that. So they asked Sharky beforehand, you know, were you like kind of frazzled and anything like you just mentioned? Were you bothered by any of that? And Sharky just kind of was like, oh, yeah, so like you said, just very un- uncaring, slightly. But I think Callie's going to be much more messed up than I would be. And just kind of sits there just, you know, looking, matter of fact, looking away, like almost like disinterested. And then Kanutsa tries to mess with him in a really thick accent, which I'm not even going to try to impersonate because it's, I would butcher it. But he basically just kind of says something to the effect of, oh, yeah, you know, like, um, you look a little nervous over there anyways. Yeah, well, he like rubs them. He like touches Sharky's arm. He's like, yeah, loosen up. It's okay, buddy. Like, you know, don't be so scared. And you see Sharky, he has his arms slugged. He's and just he going like this. He's going. Yeah, yeah. He's just shaking his head saying like, bro, do you know I'll just like snuff you right now if necessary? <laughs> like, he has, like, he's almost saying like, you're lucky the cameras aren't here because we'd be thrown down. That's how he's doing it. it, it yeah, exactly. It was, it was that kind of, it was that kind of look like he's just like, man, you're lucky this is gloves. You're lucky this is in some yeah. theater and not on the street, motherfucker. Like, there's but, no way anyone would ever disrespect me like this. Like, you just stand, I'm standing right there and you're going over, shaking my arm, talking to me like I'm a little child. <laughs> Which he essentially well, was doing. He was talking down to him like he was a kid. To be fair, Callie Knutza did treat him like a little child in the ring. Yeah, yeah, during the I fight. Mean, but that's beat him. <laughs> you beat him up pretty good but i mean you know look i think that a lot of that also was first of all like to to respond to something you were saying i think that's a really good point cali canuzzo was like the epitome of what was bad about well i mean obviously this might not have necessarily been an ethical issue for a lot of people who were against apartheid or who spoke out against it it was also a social issue because it was during the time uh activism and activism in this kind of um uh issue in this specifically in it in this issue with sun city with south africa both uh Bofutatswana and boxing and sun city and apartheid 
and taking a stance was something that was important in among celebrities too. I'm not trying to downplay the ethical involvement of it, but you know, it, it became something of a, as they, as they say, cause celebre, like a, a, you know, cause du jour, something that people are going to speak out against because it's popular to speak out against. And if you don't speak out against it one way or another, then, you know, you're the worst kind of asshole type of thing. And for those kinds of issues, for that climate, Callie Canuzzo like represented uh, a very polarizing, you know, he was a very polarizing figure when it came to apartheid and taking a stance on apartheid. And so, yeah, he had, he had been spoken out against and the people willing to promote him, bring him to the U S promote the shows when he did fight in the U S you know, those people were taken to task, uh, you know, during that time. And so anyway, yeah, I, I don't know that necessarily Bill Sharkey had any sort of involvement or whether he voiced much of a, an opinion specifically on that. I have no idea, but I'm regardless, gonna, I'm going to assume no, probably just, not. Like, you know, you're telling me to wear a show where I'm going to fight who I'm going to fight and I'm just going to show up. Right. Yeah. He's, he was probably just like, whatever, dude, fine. Put him up there. I'll fight him. But regardless, um, yeah, that's so it was kind of unfortunate, <laughs> I guess, Bill Sharkey, in, in that regard, had a chance to kick Callie Knutz's ass on U.S. soil and didn't quite, a, didn't quite get to yeah, it. You know, there was a few guys back then. Knutz was just a big bully, you know, not to not to move too far off the subject really quick, but that's what he was. If you watch, because there's a lot of footage of Knutz out there. If you, oh, see yeah. his, if you see his, like, fights before he finally got humbled by John Tate, he, he is. He just kind of walks in. I mean, he's not an outright just wild slugger, but he's a crude dude he you know but he's clearly powerful and he just kind of beats yeah. you down he was just bullying these guys and um like overwhelm you kind of yes, club you yeah. type just of kind thing of and overwhelming these dudes like he beat up bobbick who was completely shot at that point and that's him um a guy by the name of denton ruddock who who was a journeyman from that from the uk at that point um i'm not sure if that fight's still on youtube but same thing ruddock does his best to keep him off him but he's too small to keep canuts off him and same thing with Bill Sharkey. Sharkey tries his damnedest for the four rounds that it goes. It's not like he didn't try, man. He's a very game fighter, but Knutso was just way too big and way too strong and just grounded him and beat him down. Also also worth mentioning that they were frequently looking for black opponents for Knutso, specifically because that's what sold. You know, like that's like, the, it sounds dumb because it's like in the 1970s and you're like, ah, oh, that doesn't seem like it's that long ago. Like, what the fuck, bro? hello you know like that's that's still how this shit was going all the way up until Holmes Cooney and, and beyond you know what I mean like find, trying to specifically find black opponents for this guy because he was controversial but regardless needless to say Bill Sharkey was not a black dude he was a very kind of you know every man looking white guy when it comes to when it comes to his look but even so Callie just tooled him dude he was too much for him and I think that it spoke to one Sharky's a little undersized for the guys who was starting to get bigger in the division. You know, Bill Tate was not massive, but he start he was one of the kind of like a a precursor to a lot of the bigger, bigger heavyweights because he was a pretty big dude. <clears throat> but Bill Sharkey was not a big dude, and you could see it against Kanunza. He didn't have the power, he didn't have the physical strength to keep him off, and he just got eaten up. You know, he got over totally overwhelmed, yeah. and also spoke to like that was you ain't going to get past that level like you already lost to mike weaver and then you're getting blown out by cali canuzza 
Like I think that you've seen yeah, your ceiling. Yeah, you've reached a certain ceiling there, exactly. Yeah, you've and reached your not even, And I'm not even sure if you would call that even fringe contendership. Like if, yeah, like he fought a draw with Scott Ledoux right before he fought, um, right before he fought Kunitsa. And again, that kind of shows you where your ceiling is at right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Like I mentioned, the guys that I mentioned early in the show, like Lynn Ball and Money, Marty Monroe and all, you know, others of that ilk, they were good fighters, all right? They made for really good fights that were featured on television back in the day. And you can find them on YouTube today. They're like really good fighters. But they just weren't, you know, that division was so deep back then that even in the late 70s when a lot of the, you know, the a lot of the really, really great fighters of that era were like slowing down or some outright retiring, that division was still deep as shit. And yeah, man, like you, there was levels to that, bro, you know? So clearly there was a level right there for where Sharky was headed. Well, and it seemed as though if you just look at on BoxRec, if you look at kind of like the flow of his career, it makes sense because it, it it seems as though there's some there's some thought being put into this, right? Like <clears throat> he has a little win well a little win streak before losing to Greg Sorrentino, not a good fighter really by any means, but he loses on points in eight rounds, and it's like you know when you when you're getting below ten rounds, if you're the kind of fighter who needs a few rounds to get going, especially during this era when like a loss or two ain't gonna kill you, fine, you know like that's you're all right. Gets a draw with Scott Ledoux. Scott Ledoux is a name at that point, not a great fighter, but a name. And it's like, all right, fine. You know, you're getting, you're working yourself into a fight with Cali Canuzza, which you get blown out in. It's Cali Canuzza. You're outsized. You know, I can, I'm just saying, kind of playing devil to advocate in terms of how his career is being guided. Marvin Kemel. All right. Well, you, this guy's a future cruiserweight champion. And it's like, well, okay, losing to him is not like a shame or anything, but then you wind up getting tooled by Frank Williams, who's nine, four and one. And he takes like a three year break after that. So I kind of, it's almost like you're like, Oh shit, dude. Well, if I'm getting decision by Frank Williams, maybe I need to rethink this shit, you know? And that's, that's kind of what it looks like. And then he goes and comes back in 1982 has a, a bit of a win streak. And then what's that? Here's a footnote though. A quick footnote for you. The camel fight. Um, Remember that website, boxing.com, from way back, from a few years back? They had an article saying that that might have been the first cruiserweight fight ever. Yeah, I, well, I actually... Well, I mean, that is the, definitely is the first sanctioned whatever title, but even before a title fight even happened. Well, it was... Um, that was actually the first website, the first message board I had ever posted on, boxing.com, back in like 99 or 2000 or something like that, a long time ago anyway. But no, I don't remember that article, but I do remember reading, you know, that take somewhere. I don't remember from where, though. And I think there was a, there's a, there was a flyer, I think, for that was attached to the article. I did say right there, that was cool. It had Sharky and Cam- Marvin Campbell, like you mentioned, a future cruiserweight champion. And it said, you know, first cruiserweight fight, blah, 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 and like all in big letters and yeah, and well, and we talked we talked about that briefly when we talked about the history of the cruiserweight division, like maybe about a year ago. So you know, it's it's out there, but yeah, I don't know. It's something. It's it's pretty close anyway. It's kind of skinny, skinnier yeah. teeth, but, but I don't. It's interesting because they, you know, with a lot of those guys at that point, they realized that they had no chance at heavyweight, and so they were going to try exactly. to move out a little bit. And in that fight, he just got tooled again, though. Yeah, the guys, the fighters were starting to get just too big, 
you know, the, the guys who were in that kind of like too big for light heavyweight range, you know, 185, 190, 195 kind of range needed somewhere to go. So it makes sense, but I don't know that it's officially recognized as such or how much, uh, you know, weight the NABF holds, but after losing to Frank Williams, so he takes three years off and has a win streak of, of four fights before losing to Stanley Ross, who I'm not so, super familiar with. But then you look, and his final fight in 1983 is a first-round knockout to Frank Bruno, who was notorious for just pummeling the absolute shit out of opponents early on in his career. Oh, man. Bruno was an absolute monster back then. <laughs> Dude. And he was built like it too. That was built like you know an Adonis chiseled out of stone, <clears throat> and he could box and he could move. I mean, like he definitely proved his metal instead of just being like people think he was like a big stiff or anything because he proved his worth in the Lennox Lewis fights and other subsequent fights, Tim Witherspoon. But um, yeah, man, early on in his career, if you watch highlight videos of him, bro, he was brutal. I hate to say it because he seems like such a nice dude, but he was like the rabbit punching master dude that guy oh my god like what he did to jose ribalta like he yeah. like yeah. he like absolutely pummeled the hell out of ribalta like the back of ribalta's head and he did that shit to a whole bunch of people so god only knows what he did to to, to bill sharky but whatever it was well, i think that fight was on youtube at one point i'm pretty sure i watched it and sharky got absolutely planted badly that like, sounds it, about right. It, it, was, it was it was bad, man. Bruno, yeah, there, Bruno. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun fights for Bruno back then. If you haven't seen it, check out the one against Jumbo Cummings, for example, because Bruno gets at, he's out on his feet at the beginning, at the end of the first round, he gets caught and he's done. Like he's completely, he's clearly knocked out. And they just guide him back to the corner and they just wash his leg, they just rev him up, they do everything in their power, and he eventually comes back to stop Cummings, but. That first round, if he catches it at the end, bang, bang, boom, Bruno gets hit, and he's just, he's gone. And then you hear the announcers, oh, no, Bruno was finished. He's done. Like, he's cooked. Like, they all thought he was cooked, and he looked like he was. He was completely cooked. But, um, you know, Bruno was a fun fighter, man. And like you said, he was a good guy. And he's overcome a lot since, um, and you know, since his career ended in terms of mental health and other things that he's gone through, so. Yeah, so I don't want to just trash him, but man, oh, you definitely the not. Rabbit punch I mean, his style is his style, bro. You hit people with rabbit punches, you hit them with rabbit punches. You got to call it as you see it, no? Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough, dude. I don't know what it was about that wide right hand, but, and... but he also had some really. I'm before. Um, I also love that he was like sponsored by one of the first people sponsored by Nike back in the day because he had a bunch of cool ass gear. If you ever noticed that, like with his trunks and his workout gear and yeah. socks, it used to be like, yeah, man. It was cool. Hell yeah, dude. Frank Bruno was, he seems like he would have been a, a, a good dude to root for, especially if you're living in the, in the UK. But whatever he did to Bill Sharkey was bad enough that it ended Bill Sharkey's career and made him decide that in 1983, that was it. He retired after that. And so anyway, that basically leads us to where we're going in the icky part. Um, so I'll go ahead and just read from this just because I don't have it memorized, number one, but also it will help me kind of with my notes. Basically, after this, uh, he retired, and then it wasn't until 1995. So he was born in 1949. So he would have been in his mid-40s, like 45, 46 at this point. In 1995, he re-entered the ring, 
in a tough man competition in Tannersville, Pennsylvania. Uh, but he had moved to the Poconos and he had built a log cabin with a chainsaw. He had moved away from Howard Beach in Queens and moved to the Poconos because he had said that I love Howard Beach, but I didn't want my son to grow up there. Um, and basically, he it sounds like he tried to get away from whatever it was that was getting him into trouble in the city. So, I mean, in some way, you know, respectable, like, get the fuck out, bro. You know, I, I get it. But it sounds like whatever it was, something he could not leave behind, something caught up with him. So what wound up happening, Eris? Well, on, um, like you said, I'll just kind of read it myself. On October 24th, 1998, Bill Sharkey's body was found inside the trunk of a burned out car deep in the woods near his house. Apparently placed there, you know, yeah, smoked out, smoldering, everything like that. And cops had to uh, figure, I think, by dental DNA who it was. But once they figured it out, they also figured that he was um, shot to death beforehand, making this a homicide. And that's why we're profiling him today, huh? So he was found by a hunter. Uh, a hunter had found his body. And the car was engulfed in flames when the hunter came upon it. The place that it was found was called the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area, which is actually fe uh, federal land. But also, um, so this is actually not far from the Poconos. The Poconos are like the heart of the Poconos or whatever is northwest of Stroudsburg. And where he was found is just uh, just northeast of Stroudsburg. So it actually wasn't really even that far from where he was, but he was shot up, set on fire, and I guess through absolute blind luck, it was if it was a remote enough area that somebody was hunting, it just happened, I guess. Like someone just happened to be passing by, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I suppose that's kind of like fishy enough as is, and I'd be asking that person a shitload of questions. But even so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a fairly remote area. It was an area that was not, it was like a camping ground that was, you know, not somewhere where a lot of people would be driving through and stuff like that. And it was burned so badly that they had to identify him through dental records, which is some shit that you hear on one of those murder programs you watch, Eris. <laughs> you know, it's it, That's like some shit you hear in movies, you know, like I've yeah, never even heard of that being in real life. That was someone who, if when they, whoever, someone or people, whoever was involved, could have been multiple, who knows, but whoever did this job, um, one, make sure that he wasn't going to be found. Like this was... You know, they went above and beyond. This wasn't just shooting someone and putting them someplace and whatever. Like, they burned this car completely through and someone just happened to be passing by when that happened. So, but. Yeah, bad stuff, dude. For yeah, the sure. The thing is, though, is that, you know, there's still, that being said, and, you know, it's a crazy scene, there's not a lot of info on what Sharky might have been up to because, more or less, he went really quiet after his career ended. Like you said, there was a couple of bits and pieces. The tough man... Um, little tidbit there but excuse me not much was really known you know around the last decade of his life like that so to what would have um, potentially led to this you know demise 
I've read in a couple of things that they said he might have been involved in drugs and there was like some evidence that he was like doing something or, or another around that, but they don't really, you know, nothing really led to anything like that. And obviously the case went cold. About 10 years later, a local news station had put out a plea about the case, looking for leads, looking for, I don't know, evidence, uh, witnesses, anything like that, any sort of information. Um, so they, so obviously it was unsolved and to the point, and I guess worrisome to the point where they would put out a plea 10 years later after it being unsolved. I mean, I, that's a, that's as good a guess, the stuff that you brought up as far as why it would happen involved in drugs, old shit coming back to haunt him because he killed somebody back in 1971 and wound up doing some time for it. But we've talked about stuff kind of similar to this, you know, old shit coming back in these other true crime episodes where you just can't, you don't leave that life behind. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Nah, usually everything comes back, you know, full circle at some point or another. And, um, yeah, man, Sharky had so much going on in his past, like you just mentioned, that it could be a number of different things. Who knows? You know what I mean? It definitely could have been no passing situation where he might have just gone to an argument with someone because that's just the, 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 the nature of this whole, of that, of, of how he died and what they did to him is just, like, really heavy to the point that, like, there, there had to have been a major situation going on with that. There had to have been something big. So whatever he was involved in, that's kind of the mystery of it. But yeah, it's basically, there's not much out there after this. You know, like you said, there's been a couple of times the case has been reopened. People are trying to get info on it. And there's been little tidbits here and there, but they don't, no one really has anything. Yeah, it's, it's not quite, uh, I guess I've, I've said this on other true crime episodes, dude, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm an amateur criminologist or anything because I'm not. <laughs> But, you know, having watched some of those programs or whatever, it, it seems like overkill would be, for instance, when somebody gets stabbed and you don't just stab them, stab them enough to kill them, you stab them 95 times. Like, mm -hmm. that's overkill. This isn't overkill. This is trying to hide evidence. Like, this is trying to, like, you know, you killed somebody and you're lighting their body on fire in the woods. Like, that's not the kind of thing where, you know, you're pissed off or something like that and you want it to be found. Like that's, you're, you're trying to destroy it. I mean, I will say this though, if it was something old, if it was some old shit that came back to haunt him, you know, over 25 years later, that's somebody with a, sh with a hell of a fucking grudge. So whatever <laughs> it was that happened must've been pretty intense or just absolutely the wrong person. Yeah, man, that's just one thing we don't know at the moment, or we probably will never really know at that. Um, but like you said, dude, if, that was something that he did. That is a hell of a grudge to hold for that long to come back on somebody after all those years. But I, if again, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not no detective like this or anything. I can just make guesses like the best of anybody. But um, considering when he was living in a pretty remote location, like you said, after he moved out of uh, Howard North, um, Howard Beach, and just wanted to get away from everything and kind of live a quiet life, I guess. I'm just going to assume something must have happened around over there. And that shit's how fucking John Wick movies start, bro. He's like off yeah, trying to yeah. live a quiet life. I mean, the good thing they killed him because that motherfucker would have been running through a whole like crime house at this point. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's, it's obviously, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty wicked, pretty vile. 
Um, and here's the thing is that like boxing such an into to bring this up again that we've always done in other shows boxing such a crazy sport bro that this is a story that's never even been like here listen to the story we just gave this is a crazy thing that could be its own documentary any of those crime shows that i watch or anyone else is a big fan of or anything like that this would be something that people would love to see in uh in our documentary on people being interviewed and trying to figure out what happened this is in boxing no one's even thought like 90 percent of people never even heard of this whole thing because it just gets brushed under the web because so much shit happens in boxing you know what's crazy is i guess even for that matter we we haven't even brought up the possibility of there being some boxing involvement like maybe he fucking double crossed the wrong boxing person you know what i'm saying oh. like, i mean fuck bro boxing's so crazy it's it's not it's not impossible there's just you know a lot a lot of scenarios and variables with this man yeah dude, the one that i could say out of all of them that we've really done this the one that's most shrouded in mystery afterwards in terms of that, like, there's not really an answer. You're not sure if there's going to be an answer. Um, and for over, it's coming up on, what's it been now? Like, like 24 years or so. And, um, yeah. In yeah, October, dude, there's, I can't imagine that at this point. About as lost as they were back then. Yeah. I, at this point, uh, it's, it's because the evidence has been burned you know the the car itself has been burned and they haven't found anything else it, it would be so unlikely for them to find something new at this point to solve the crime so i mean i'm i'm not the kind of person that's going to put out any sort of plea or anything like that in that regard and especially not for me but i would be interested to know if anything developed from it or if anybody else has any other information as far as like what they've developed with the case i'd be cons i'd be uh curious but yeah, yeah, so. pretty crazy shit, man. Well, just another case to add to you know that crazy era of heavyweight boxing from the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah, for sure, dude. Well, hey, I I uh, wish that we had a little bit more information, but whether or not we do, I appreciate you taking the time to look this up and talk this out with me, man. Absolutely, bro. It's always a blast doing this. For sure. Well, everybody, thank you so much for watching or listening in whichever method you chose. If you did choose watching on YouTube, if you would subscribe, very much appreciate that. Leave a comment or a review, something like that. If you did listen on a podcast app, same, subscribe, comment, review, etc. Always helpful. But if you're on social media, go ahead and follow us, for instance, on Twitter. My buddy Eris is there at Punch Zone Eris, A-R-I-S. I'm there, Patrick Connor at Patrick M. Connor, but we're also on Facebook, Instagram, all those sorts of things. And Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Absolutely, man. Have a good one. For sure. Later, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.